0: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Positive the People. In this episode, we have me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as usual with the news, and we're joined by Ibram Kendi, the author and historian whose new book is called How to Be an Anti-Racist. I sat down with him to discuss what the concept means and to learn about his perspective on the past, present, and future of race relations and identity.
1: Really, the heartbeat of racism itself has always been denial, and the sound of that denial, the sound of that heartbeat has always been, I am not racist. No matter what I just said, no matter what policies or policymaker or racist powers I support, I am not racist. And so for me to be anti-racist is actually to admit when we express racist ideas.
0: It's Thanksgiving week. I already had a couple Friendsgivings parties and it's so beautiful to be around a chosen family. The thing that has been on my mind for me and for a lot of people I'm close to is like, are you thankful for you? Check in about the ways that you've been kind to yourself the ways that you've treated yourself, the ways that you have made decisions about how you treat other people. I had to step back and say that I'm thankful for my ability to reflect on the past and own my mistakes. I'm thankful for the way that I have learned to love the people around me and to grow in that and to not let that suffocate me or the people I love. I'm thankful for being open to new situations And like check in with yourself about the ways that you are thankful for who you are. Let's go.
2: Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Pack Yeti on all social media.
3: And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third.
0: Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at D-R-A-Y on Twitter.
2: So you all, I think I'm finally canceled. Um, You know, they say you either die a villain or (laughs) die beloved. And apparently I will die a villain whenever it is my time because I had the unmitigated gall and sheer audacity to tell Twitter that I don't care if you call it stuffing or dressing, because I don't like any of it. I think soggy bread is nasty. I feel like this is something that I should be able to stand up on and live in my truth, out loud and in public. But apparently, that was a, Very controversial opinion, although I will say I think I've freed a lot of people from stuffing shame over the last 72 hours who have been wanting to say this but didn't feel courageous enough to finally admit their truth. But what say you all?
4: So I grew up in New Orleans, and we didn't really do, like, a lot of stuffing. Like, stuffing and dressing wasn't a big—like, our—you know, a lot of people, it's like the turkey and the, like— mashed potatoes and the this and the that. We had like gumbo and etouffee. It's so funny because when I grew up, I like didn't fully understand the nature of like traditional Thanksgiving meals. And so I went to a friend's house and I was like, what are these mashed potatoes doing here? I don't understand. What are these sweet <laughs> potatoes doing? Get these out of my face. My Thanksgiving hot take is that I really don't like Sweet potatoes. What? Sweet potato fries, sweet potato potatoes.
2: Do you not like sweet potato pie?
4: Don't put sweet potatoes anywhere near me. No fries, no pie, no tater tots, no nothing. So you the one out here you freed me. You thought you told me I could tell my truth. You told me I could be free. <laughs> Listen,
2: that is a truth that is unacceptable. I don't I mean dressing is one thing, but sweet potato pie? Okay, I hope they come for you and stop coming for me.
3: Y'all both canceled to be honest. I mean, I love the stuffing and I love the sweet potato pie. My
2: husband just walked through the room and made a face. That was the right face <laughs> to make. Yeah, you
3: both canceled because that's the best part of the Thanksgiving meal is the stuffing and the sweet potato pie.
2: The best part is the mac and cheese and the greens. I don't what eat is, stuffing. See, thank you.
3: The best part is the gumbo. You have gumbo
4: on Thanksgiving. Well,
2: yeah, because oh. it's New Orleans.
4: We have gumbo on all occasions.
2: I would take gumbo instead of dressing. Like, I'm fine with that.
4: I need to start that. Imagine what the world would look like if we replaced all sweet potatoes with bowls of gumbo. It would just there would be world peace. Everybody would be so happy. That's
2: not even the same food group. <laughs> like one is savory and sweet potato pie is sweet. Like, come on, fam. I grew up not really liking candied yams and like sweet potatoes as a side before they were fries, the kind of traditional way to make sweet potatoes. They weren't always my favorite. But when somebody decided to tell me that you could put sweet potatoes in a pie crust, oh, I was sold. And I don't understand how A, you cannot like that and B, try to replace that with gumbo. You call me a hypocrite because I definitely feel the way that people are coming for me not liking dressing, but I don't understand how you do not like sweet potato pie.
3: Brittany, you can't you, you can't make that case after not liking stuffing. I mean, it's just not even...
2: I can and I did. <laughs> I said what I said, Samuel. <laughs> I said what I said. Do you have an opinion on this, DeRay?
3: I don't eat stuffing or
0: dressing or whatever you call it, so I'm out of that battle. And sweet potato pie is a must.
2: <laughs> anyway, no matter what you put on your plate this holiday season, make sure you remember always to do one thing. Do not tell your children a lie about Thanksgiving. We should all remember that this is not necessarily everyone's favorite holiday for a justifiably good reason. We also understand that this is a time when some people uh, see their families, sup with them, and maybe the only time this year that you see your family. So however you celebrate, if you celebrate, um, if you gather on this holiday, please do remember the true facts uh, about Thanksgiving. Don't share that myth anymore. Let's continue to be reminded of the existence and dignity of indigenous people. And now the news.
3: So my news is about a series of lawsuits that Democrats have filed in four states, Georgia, Arizona, Texas, and Florida. And these lawsuits are focused on a topic that I actually didn't know much about. So apparently in these states, there's a law that's been on the books for quite some time that requires the candidate that is of the party of the current governor to be listed first on the ballot. And as you can imagine, Republicans control most governorships in this country. So as a result, in those states, the Republican has been listed first over the past several elections. Now, the reason that Democrats are suing over this is because of research that shows that the candidate being listed first, just the act of having your name above the other candidate, regardless of your political party or your policy positions, that that actually is associated with a 5% higher vote share than if your name was ranked second under the other candidate. Um, so as you can imagine, this has been on the ballot for like quite some time in key states that decide elections like Florida and Arizona and as Georgia and Texas, which are going to be in play, hopefully, this election. And it just boggles my mind that the simple order that you're on the ballot can decide the entire election in a close race and what that means for laws that are on the books that structure the order of who's on the ballot um, and how that impacts the political environment we're in today. Now, the first of these lawsuits was filed in July, and that was the one challenging Florida's ballot order law. Fortunately, just this past week, we've seen the courts strike down that law and order the state to implement a new system for deciding what the order is on the ballot. We still haven't heard what's going to happen in those other states, but this is promising news. Uh, We'll see, of course, what's going to happen now that the state is challenging this and trying to appeal this decision. But again, these are the small things, uh, the order of who's on the ballot, that can ultimately decide elections.
2: You know, I'm... Truly not surprised by this fact, if I'm honest. it Like, it would follow, right, that just given kind of what we know casually about human psychology, human patterns... Um, that the things that are listed first are going to subconsciously take priority in your mind, or that it's at least possible that they do. What I found to be most fascinating about this news that I'm really glad you brought is that the state is planning on appealing this decision. So we find out that the change that Democrats wanted to make, um, and that was made by this court, would actually be better and more fair and get us the kinds of more accurate results out of elections that all people deserve— And the state said, no, 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 we don't want that. And then, of course, there is a complete cyclical nature to this thing, because the attorney general of your state is determined by election, and whether or not that election is fair determines whether or not you've got a person in that seat who has a vested interest in changing the system or not that elected them. It's really frustrating to see that this is a ruling that will not stand as it is, I'm hopeful that the courts make the right decision on appeal, but it's really, really sad to see Florida be so clear in saying they're going to appeal this decision.
4: Yeah, and I was really struck by something that the Stanford professor and researcher John Krosnick said when he was testifying about this. He said that races are won by tiny margins these days, and I believe that Donald Trump was elected president because of the primacy effect. In states where he won by margins of less than 2%, he was listed first on all of those ballots. He gained a small advantage, and our studies on name order effects in election show that this was big enough cause for him to win. So we've explored over the past three years racism, xenophobia, quote-unquote economic anxiety, the loss of jobs. There are a myriad of reasons why the election went in the way that it did, and this is not something that I had considered. And as Brittany said, intuitively it makes sense, and from my own experience, knowing that like sometimes when I get too a person who I don't know, you are drawn to tick the box that comes first. And one thing that, uh, based on another study that uh, that the Stanford professor, along with some researchers at a university of Chicago did in 2013, they also found that the name order effect was greater among left-handed people when the candidate's name was arranged horizontally. So you can imagine vertically, if the name is on top, that that has a certain impact. But for left-handed people, if the name is arranged vertically, so left to right, they are more likely to fill in the first name than they are the second name if they are operating with less information about these candidates in some of these sort of down-ballot races, which is... Really fascinating and something I never thought of. So uh, it really goes to show that the small things matter. And it's good that Democrats and and adjacent organizations recognize that we need to be proactive about a lot of these things, because as a lot of the governor's races that have happened in the last couple of weeks have shown, it's going to be tight. And we need to make sure that folks are doing everything possible to put ourselves in positions to win.
0: One of the things that this put me on was to think a little bit deeper about uh, Florida Florida is a state that has a registration deadline that's 29 days before the election. So people have been pushing for same-day voter registration all across the country, not just in Florida. But in Florida, it's 29 days before the election. And does anybody know why it was 29 days before the election? This is what I learned that I'm fascinated by. It was because four weeks gave the election offices enough time to print out the most comprehensive list of all the voters to send across the state. That's why. So it was like enough time back in the day so they could actually like verify the voters quote uh, by sending the names all across the state. But as you know, we don't need four weeks to put a list together, technology, a spreadsheet. Like there are many ways that you could actually have somebody registered that day and the name shows up in everybody's role all across the state. So it was really interesting to just think about like those sort of things. And another thing that I didn't realize is that the reason why in Florida, for instance, the mail-in ballots have to be received on Election Day. So in places like New Jersey, the ballots have to be postmarked on Election Day, like by Election Day. But in Florida, they have to be received by the end of the day on election day, by the time the polls close, which totally means that the post office might be the arbiter of a vote. But more importantly, the reason why that deadline is there is because Florida wants to be the kingmaker. They want to know at the end of the day who won. So the only reason why the deadline's not a little bit later or a week later is because they want to be a kingmaker in the national stage with the presidential election, I thought that there must be some sort of, I don't know, procedural reason or processing reason. It's like, nope. these are really mundane things that we can push against in the name of fairness. There are states across the country where people have to prove that they need a mail-in ballot. It's like, why do you care if they vote by mail or vote at the polling booth? It's like, they shouldn't have to have a doctor's note to vote by mail. Like, we should actually make voting as easy as possible. And I had no clue that some of the reasons uh, why are really mundane and simple. But it makes sense from all of what we talk about on the pod regularly.
3: And that's like the written rules. There's a lot of unwritten actions that are taken behind the scenes that affect the vote as well. So, just this past gubernatorial election in Florida and the 2018 election, right before that registration deadline, as we were registering voters in the state, they shut down the online registration portal. So, nobody could register in the crucial period before that registration deadline. And then I know multiple people, just personally, who requested mail in ballots and received mail-in ballots for the primary, but never received them for the general. And just tweeted about this, I remember, right before the election, and multiple people from Florida were responding that this also had happened to them, and they were all black, brown, young people. There's so much to unpack here from ballot order to the registration deadline, to the mail-in ballots, and each step of the way we see how these are structured in ways that essentially decide elections because Flora's always a close election, always comes down to a hundred thousand votes. And all of these things, the effect of them is always gonna be greater than that.
0: Don't go anywhere, more politics the people's coming.
5: Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South.
0: Today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp com slash people.
6: It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help, you don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. You set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. (laughs) Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee.
3: horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at Cricket.com slash store for this month only.
5: Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So my news this week comes out of a deep-seated frustration for the latest massive public failing up of a startup CEO turned millionaire or billionaire all to leave people out in the cold. I'm talking, of course, about Adam Newman, the former CEO of WeWork. The story around WeWork is that essentially Adam and his wife believed that it was going to revolutionize the way that everyone works. And when you think about this current generation that is in the workforce, it makes some sense. But... Venture capitalist funders treated this idea like it was perhaps the second coming of Christ and pumped so much money into it and allowed it to grow so fast that nobody was really checking in to see if this place was being managed very well, if the money was being managed well, if the leadership actually had the skill and capacity to grow at this rate, and if the staff was receiving the kind of support that they needed. Lo and behold, none of those things were true. And not only did WeWork have a complete failure in their uh, IPO offering, in their public offering. They were losing money by the droves. Adam Newman resigned in September. There was a cash injection by a foreign investor. And today we found out that 2,400 employees of WeWork were just laid off. Now, these folks will get severance and hopefully some packages to help them transition. At least that's what's being said. But what we know is that what they will receive in severance and transition packages hail in comparison to the $1.7 billion golden parachute that Adam Newman got for failing this company. When he left, he got $1.7 billion in various ways to pay back loans and to continue on with his life. Someone did the math and figured out that Adam Neumann made more than $700,000 for each person who got fired From WeWork, and you know, I thought to myself that this is a pattern that we are seeing exposed more and more. When we think about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, and the ways in which she dodged accountability for years until recently, Billy McFarland, who is now actually facing prison time, I do believe, but the massive Fire Festival failure that left not only people stranded on an island, but a number of Bahamians actually not receive the kinds of funds that they had contracted for for the services that they provided. this pattern has been deeply frustrating to me for a couple of reasons one that people are allowed to fail up so spectacularly that even when they've shown patterns of failures before like some of these three ceos that i just named have that they're still allowed to fail with even more money billions and billions of dollars are still invested in them and two that there is an overwhelming pattern about these folks that we see these folks are almost all white or white presenting and white presenting is important here But look, the fact of the matter is, is that venture capitalist funding, funding that comes to startups and entrepreneurs is deeply racist, as you can imagine. In 2016, the Center for Global Policy Solutions did a study and they reported that America is losing out on over 1.1 million businesses owned by people of color. And as a result, we're foregoing over 9 million potential jobs and 300 billion dollars in collective national income. Of the black founders and entrepreneurs out here beginning startups, less than 1% of them are actually getting any kind of venture capital backing. And we see that venture capitalist firms Very few of them are actually black led. We also know that entrepreneurs are expected to raise money from friends and family as a first or second round. But this in and of itself is biased, especially given the fact that black folks have an average net worth of $11,000 compared to $144,000 for white folks. So there's no possible way that a black startup founder would be able to fail up this spectacularly and leave this many people at risk. Now, to be clear, nobody should be allowed to behave this way. But perhaps if we actually started investing in people who are proving their worth, proving their concept and are not going to leave people in a lurch like this, we would stop seeing stories like this being reported.
3: And along those lines, I mean, thinking about how spectacularly these folks failed up, I mean, we know about them, right? They are infamous, but also in many ways revered in the culture, right? There are documentaries about them, multiple documentaries about Firefest. They have teams of people trying to shape a narrative around essentially being a really good scammer and that being sort of a, a great thing when you're white, but when you're black, you go to prison. It is wild to see how people are leveraging their existing wealth and advantages and privileges to engage in these cons, right? And I think, you know, when we're talking about that, we have to also talk about who's currently in the White House because that is also a con of many billions of dollars. There just isn't an example that we can point to of black people even having access to this kind of money, let alone being able to engage in these kind of practices. I think about all the hoops that you have to jump through as an organizer, as somebody doing real work with a real track record of results to point to. And yet at the same time, it's sort of like pennies on the dollar. There's not access to this kind of resource. It's the same resources that are being given to, you know, white venture capitalists with no record of success, with nothing but a pitch and absolutely no reason at all to believe that what they're saying is going to actually happen.
4: WeWork had to pay its own CEO, Adam Newman almost $6 million for use of the copyright of the word we. So Adam Newman purchased and trademarked and owned through a private company the word we and then sold it to WeWork for $6 million. So he trademarked it and sold it to his own company and his own company had to pay him for the trademark. I mean, it's just like this dude is just a next level scammer. And that's not an admirable thing. There are people with families, people with children, People who have to pay their rent, people who have to pay their mortgage, people who have to pay their student loans, 2,400 of them who just got laid off, who don't get the severance packages that they deserve because of this person. And I think that, you know, trademarking the word we and selling it to your own company so that you get paid is kind of a microcosm of the situation at hand that was created by this character. And I'm sad for those employees. I'm reminded that
0: a report came out last year that said only 34 Black women founders have raised over $1 million in venture funding since 2009. And we know that these trends have been consistent over time. Is that you think about things like WeWork, you think about the social media platforms, all these service based platforms that aren't selling a product. We don't even have a framework for a Black or person of color who has been given enough money at scale, to scale a company and grow it that makes no profits. Like, that is really wild when you think about it. It's like, you think about a company like Twitter, which operated for a long time before they made any profit, and they had a ton of money, employed people all across the world. And I can't think of any company with a Black founder that has been given that much money. And the only companies I can think of where there are Black people who, were heavily invested in our products. So you think about Shea Moisture, you think about Essence. like there are companies that have products that have black founders that have had sizable investments. But in terms of like platforms and services, it sort of is wild that there's a history of white people getting a ton of money on these ideas that they are able to just bankroll with literally no profits. I didn't even know, it wasn't until I was an adult that I knew you could have a company with no profits. I thought, like, I didn't even know that was like a thing that you could build a company that had offices all across the world, and literally there had never, ever been a profit. And that is heavily about race. So when we look at the data, one of the reasons that explains the lack of funding for Black founders is that there are not a lot of Black VCs. Uh, there are more now than there used to be, but people aren't investing in funds that are managed by Black people. And that means that uh, often like the recruiting and the identifying of talent is not happening in ways that make sense. But there are some great VCs out there. I think about Paul Judge is one. I think about what Chris is doing over at the Horowitz Fund with that entirely new fund of black funders and uh, BCs who are investing in, in black led and people of color led enterprises. So I'm hopeful about it. But the sheer scale at which WeWork was allowed to grow. And Brittany, just so you know, it was reported, I think today, the bailout money for WeWork, the company that bailed out WeWork is thinking about taking back some of the money they promised to give Adam Newman. So hopefully that happens.
4: So for my news, I want to talk about a big investigation that was done by Newsday. So working with outside experts, Newsday, who's one of the leading papers in Long Island, they conducted this three-year-long extensive investigation into racism in the housing market. So what they did is they sent pairs of undercover testers, uh, a black-white pair, Latinx white pair and an Asian white pair in sequences to realtors throughout the area. The testers reported racially disparate treatment in 40% of the interactions with realtors. Black testers experienced disparate treatment, uh, 49% of cases, so almost half. Latinx testers in 39%, Asian testers in 19%. Um, Some realtors refused to show listings or conduct house tours for minority testers. Others steered them away from predominantly white neighborhoods. They tried to keep white folks away from black and brown neighborhoods by using coded language. One agent said to a white customer, I don't want to use the word steer, but I try to educate People about these areas. I have to say it without saying it, you know. And this is what the real estate agent said, because legally she cannot say those things. But she's also trying to give these folks clues as to whether or not this is a neighborhood she thinks they should live in. And this is her talking to white people who are looking for homes. And so it's a really fascinating thing, and it's a, a microcosm of something that's much larger. And you know, this was one investigation in one part of the country with a specific history of housing discrimination and racism. But there's similar studies that have been done that we've kind of talked about before. For example, one done by the Urban Institute and the Department of Housing uh, that showed nationwide patterns of housing discrimination. After conducting 8,000 tests in representative sample of 28 metropolitan areas, researchers found that compared with whites, black renters, and home buyers were shown substantially fewer units as were, to a lesser extent, Asian Americans and Latinx folks. And I bring this up just because, you know, we talk about structural racism and systemic racism, and those are obvious realities, and, you know, they are sort of a centerpiece of our discussions. But I don't want people to think that interpersonal racism now does not exist simply because it's more subtle. Some people will say, oh, we moved from interpersonal racism to structural racism. It's like, no, actually, there are a lot of people who engage in racism on an interpersonal level that reify existing systems and structures. And this is just one example. And like housing discrimination is something that is still profoundly widespread. And as we've talked about, affects someone's capacity for intergenerational wealth, impacts the types of schools people have access to. So I just wanted to bring this up because it's important for us to remember amid the structures, amid the systems, that there are also racist people who wouldn't necessarily identify themselves as such.
2: You know, Clint, I'm really glad that you clarified that last point. What we should know from the scholarship is that racism, all kinds of oppression manifests primarily in three ways. Individual, the kind of stuff that you just described, Clint, through these real estate agents. Institutional, right, which is how your school or your church might emphasize these things, might teach these things, might carry on these mindsets, and systemic, how entire systems work within themselves and intersect with other systems to create um, generations of oppression across various fields, geographic areas, etc., But the thing we have to understand about all three of those manifestations of oppression and racism is that they all depend on one another. So racist individuals learn those mindsets and behaviors from the institutions that they are a part of. They learn from other real estate agents, for example, how to have conversations that are deeply racist, but that don't actually cross the boundary into illegal, for example, right? So the industry of real estate is necessary as an institution to teach individuals. individuals how to continue to perpetuate racist mindsets and behaviors. To your point, Clint, That individual racism still costs people money, it costs people opportunity, it costs people access to generational wealth, it costs people access to safety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a number of ways in which racism and oppression continue to manifest themselves. And just because it doesn't look like systemic racism doesn't mean that it doesn't have a hugely detrimental effect, and it doesn't mean that it's not deeply connected to both systemic and institutional racism at the same time.
3: So one of the aspects of this research that was so fascinating was the methodology and just how rigorous they were in conducting this study. Not only did they have dozens and dozens and dozens of testers who were paired and would go out with body cameras essentially recording all of the interactions that they were having with these real estate agents, um, but then they had two independent experts on fair housing who reviewed the transcripts, who reviewed where people were sent and then had to independently both reach the same conclusion that there was a fair housing violation in order for that to be considered a violation in the study. And, you know, in the end, you look at this process, you look at the comments that were made, particularly, you know, it was fascinating to see the comments that were made to the white home buyers and how you know real estate agents sort of felt at liberty to just say, you don't want to go to that neighborhood or using slurs talking about a neighborhood having crack. They didn't even know this person and they just felt completely comfortable saying that and that that was gonna make the difference in where somebody chooses to live, which you know we know that actually for many people that does make a difference, right? The other thing that's interesting is that this is in Long Island, right? This is not in the South, right? This is not in areas that are sort of thought of as the bastions of racism. It's just another reminder that racism is not limited to the South, that racism has been happening and continues to happen in the North, that Long Island continues to be one of the most segregated suburbs in the country, that school districts in Long Island and other places in the North are also incredibly segregated to this day. Personally, this was interesting because, you know, I was born in Long Island, moved down to Florida when I was just one years old, but I remember stories from my dad. Uh, at one point, he was in my my grandma's house in Great Neck, New York, in Long Island, And he accidentally pressed the panic button, which he thought was the disposal in the sink. And a couple minutes later, while he's washing the dishes, uh, he notices that the police are outside pointing a gun at him. And they pointed a gun at him because they thought that he couldn't possibly live in Long Island, that he couldn't possibly live in that neighborhood, that he didn't belong there, and the segregation that is being perpetuated by these practices, by this housing discrimination, maintains a segregated environment that then contributes also to the racism that we see in policing, to perceptions about who belongs and doesn't belong in particular areas, and all of these other forms of violence and discrimination that we talk about on this pod and and that continue to manifest in our society.
0: There's a new report that just came out from the National Fair Housing Alliance that began collecting data related to HUD uh, 24 years ago. And what they find is that this is a record year for discriminatory housing complaints, Uh, over 31,000 filed in just 2018. But what they also found that was really interesting is that the enforcement from HUD is essentially plummeting. So they find that last year, about 75% of housing complaints were actually pursued by private nonprofit organizations Only 25% were cases that were a result of combined government actions by state, local, and federal agencies. So what we find is that HUD is actually really embodying the idea of just not enforcing, not protecting, not responding. And this is something we saw happen across the agencies. So we see it with like the education agency, but particularly with HUD, when you think about the sheer number of people who live in public housing, And you think about the reliance that they have on the system actually responding, right? Like if the government is your landlord, then you expect the landlord to respond, especially around claims about discrimination or housing. Uh, And HUD has actually abdicated that role. This also made me think of just the sheer amount of people who are trying to access government services. So in the city of Baltimore, right now, the waiting list for public housing closed at 14,000 people. There are only 600,000 people in the city of Baltimore, and there are 14,000 people on the waiting list for public housing. So when you think about the waiting lists across the country for housing, what that looks like combined with the discrimination that people face in all housing processes, it actually is pretty dramatic. So my news is about refugee resettlement. So let me just start and say that in October of 2019, it was the first time since the 80s when the data first started being collected that no refugee was resettled in the United States. Yes, you heard that. No refugee was resettled in the United States in October of 2019 because of the Trump administration. Uh, We started collecting this data around 1980. Then the government resettled about 200,000 people to the country. And since then, the population has risen about 40%, but the number of refugees resettled is down more than 80%. So when Trump has given all this talk about immigration and refugees, the government apparatus has actually followed through and almost effectively depressed the amount of people allowed in the country that I never thought it would get to zero. I thought it'd be really low. But what they did is that the government actually issued an emission ceiling of 18,000 for fiscal year 2020, the lowest in almost 30 years. And that is well below the number of people displaced already in the pipeline to be resettled in the United States. And to give you some context, the ceiling for 2018 was 45,000, and the ceiling for 2019 is 30,000. And the next ceiling is 18,000. I just wanted to bring this here because the UN is estimating that there are about 26 million refugees worldwide. Uh, Many of them are people who are fleeing persecution. Many of them are women and children. And again, like you just look at what this looks like and zero is just such a wild number. The next president has to undo this damage.
4: I was recently in Senegal. I studied abroad in Senegal. Ten years ago, and I was in Senegal doing some work for my book out there, exploring different historical sites tied to the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade, and one of the things that kept coming up in conversations with folks that I was talking to uh, was how much climate change was impacting their country and how much climate change was impacting their lives. And it's one of those things that when we think about refugees, we, as we've talked about before, like we cannot understand the magnitude of the global refugee crisis without understanding how climate change is going to continue to exacerbate that crisis in ways that are Difficult for us to even imagine. And I'm thinking about Senegal because I was there, and it's Senegal is this small country just north of the equator, and it contributes almost nothing. To global carbon emissions so for example senegal emitted six-tenths of one metric ton of carbon dioxide per capita in 2014 which put it around 150 out of 195 countries in that same year the u.s emitted nearly 17 tons per capita which is almost 30 times as much and yet senegal along with many other west african countries and many countries in the global south stand to suffer from the worst effects of climate change Uh, farming communities are already experiencing severe drought Average temperatures are expected to increase one to three degrees Celsius by 2060, which could basically cripple rain-fed agriculture. The nation's coastal lines are reeling from harsher storm surges, and coastlines are are basically disappearing, and people's homes are now being flooded that used to be on the water, but now they are underwater. And so these are folks who oftentimes end up trying to take boats to Europe or end up in the major cities, and that creates its own set of issues. But I bring this up because... The United States is directly or indirectly responsible and inextricably linked to many of the reasons that people will increasingly be fleeing their homes over the course of the next several years, the next several decades. And so the idea that we would allow no one here, that we would have zero refugees, It's difficult to even find a word for how harmful that is. It's going to get worse. Climate change is going to exacerbate these global conflicts. It's going to make food more scarce. And we cannot be a country that contributes to the political and economic and social instability of other countries across the world and then allows no one safety and sanctuary in this country. We can't be that.
0: That's the news. And now my conversation with historian and author Ibram Kinde. Ibram, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People.
1: Oh, of course. Great to be on the show.
0: The last time we spoke was in Edinburgh, and it was right before your book came out in the United States. What has been surprising about the tour? I think about so many people who are experiencing the idea of anti-racism for the first time, and you've had uh, so many people come out on the tour. The book has done incredibly well. It's been on the list, stayed on the list. Uh, How's that been?
1: I had expectations for the book and and of course for people to really be moved by it but until I started seeing it I guess I didn't really believe <laughs> it I mean cuz obviously the you know the concept in, in the book really challenges people's belief that they're not racist but then it also as you know it challenges some of the more canonical notions within among those who, who study or even think about racism. And so I didn't really know what to expect. But certainly, I think people are seriously engaging it. They may not be agreeing with everything, but, but they're seriously engaging it. Or and you have some people who are sort of agreeing and being moved by. And, and that's really all we can ever ask for, is for people to seriously engage our work
0: people say, why anti-racist? How is that different from the work of uh, not being racist or not being prejudiced? How do you explain that to them?
1: Well, I came to that largely through through studying the history of racist ideas and, and finding that people who were producing these racist ideas were commonly considering these ideas to be not racist and people themselves were commonly considering themselves to be not racist. And so over the course of history, racists have self-identified as not racist. And so for me, um, I was trying to figure out okay, why is that the case? Why do people so consistently self-identify as not racist? And and it was largely because really the heartbeat of racism itself has always been denial and the sound of that Denial. The sound of that heartbeat has always been, "I am not racist." No matter what I just said, no matter what policies or policymaker or racist powers I support, I am not racist. And so, for me to be anti-racist is actually to admit when we express racist ideas. It's it's actually to admit those times in our life when we supported racist policies or or supported racist power or reinforced it. it. It's actually to admit and 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 so that's to me one of the fundamental differences, the denial of not racist and the admission of of being anti-racist.
0: Is everything either racist or anti-racist or is there like a middle ground? Is there like a neutral
1: space? So I've yet to find a, a middle ground. <laughs> so I think when it comes to ideas, you have notions of racial hierarchy and you have notions of racial equality. And there's really no in-between hierarchy and equality. It's either the case that the racial groups are, are equals, they're on the same level despite any differences, or it's the case that certain racial groups are, are better or worse than others. There's really no in-between that. When it comes to policies, there's either policies that are leading to racial inequity and injustice, and there's policies leading to racial equity and injustice. There's really no in-between equity and inequity. There's no in-between justice and injustice. And then certainly when it comes to people, we're either expressing or supporting those racist or anti-racist ideas and policies. Now, you have people who believe both racist and anti-racist ideas. When it comes to policing, they're, they're racist. But then when it comes to healthcare care, they can be anti-racist. But in each moment, typically people are being one or the other. And I think one of the major, if not the primary contribution of, of this book in particular, is it's really anchored on, on definitions, on very clear and consistent definitions of of a racist idea, of a racist policy, of a racist, of queer racism, of gender racism, of many different forms of of racism. And I think the terms and the definitions and the clarity, I think, allows people, and when I say people, I'm talking about everyday people, not people who are literally involved in, in grassroots organizations or regularly, you know, attending lectures on racism. But but what I'm hoping is is it gives everyday people the ability to really understand their racialized world, the, the way to understand if they're reinforcing racism and, and white supremacy or not. Because I think the good thing about the last 50 years, particularly when it comes to racial scholarship, is the work has gotten very, very sort of complex. And we've been able to really lay out The complexities of racism and white supremacy. But in many ways, we haven't simultaneously been able to create language that we can communicate those complexities, that we can clarify them for everyday people. And so that's what I'm hoping that this book does. And it it gives people a very clear and consistent sort of not only term to be anti-racist, but but a series of sort of steps of, of, of what that truly means.
0: And for those of you who have not yet read the book, you should get the book. But every chapter begins, like Yvonne said, with uh, a set of definitions or a definition to anchor the rest of the chapter. You talked about queer racism a minute ago, and there's a whole section about it in the book. Why was this important to include in the book? Because there are a lot of people who would say that, like, race is one thing, and identity, sort of, sexuality, is another thing, and that one of the reasons why the civil rights fight has been so complicated is that people have confused it too, or that people sort of subjugate race for identity or vice versa. Why did you include a chapter on queer racism in the book?
1: Well, I think because first and foremost, the way in which race sort of racialization operates in our society is that queer people have always really been been racialized. In other words, there was a such thing and has historically been a such thing as Black queer people. And racist ideas have historically imagine that they were inferior to white queer people and and even, of course, to black and white heterosexuals. But then also, you know, there's disparities between black and white queer people, between black queer people and black heterosexuals. And like with any other sort of disparities, the question is, why do those disparities exist? You know, why is it that the children of, of black queer people are more likely to be impoverished than the children of white queer people and the children of black heterosexuals. Why is that? And, and there's only really two explanations. Either there's something wrong with those parents and those children that they're not working hard or saving enough money for their children, or it's the case that they're being targeted by what I in the book I, I classify as queer racism, this intersection of racist and, and homophobic policies. And so if that is the case, That means they're being targeted by racist policies. And so for those who are serious about ending racism, you're not just, we can't just be serious about ending racism that's affecting black people in general. We have to be serious about ending racist policies wherever they show up.
0: Why is it important to think about the relationship between racist ideas and racist policy? Why does that matter? I think about your first book, mapping those racist ideas. What's the what there? Why does that matter?
1: So Americans commonly, and this isn't just white Americans, but even people of color, are taught to look out at racial inequities, like the inequities we just described between black and and white queer people, and see normality, and to see that the reason for those inequities are because there's something wrong with the people on the lower end of the inequity. And so when we have those racist ideas— and when we think that the cause of those inequities are bad people, you know what it is that we don't see? We don't see the actual true cause of those inequities, which is racist policies. And so then what happens is the powerful people who are behind those policies are typically able to continue to benefit from those policies because we can't even see them, let alone resist them and challenge them and eliminate them. And so in what I talk about in How to Be an Anti-Racist, like my previous book is that that's actually intended. (laughs) In other words, people who are instituting racist policies and are benefiting from those policies actually are trying to convince us that the cause of racial inequities in our society is not those bad policies, but it's bad people. In other words, black people are 40% of the incarcerated population, not because of the racist policies within our legal system, but because of the fact that black people are more likely to be violent and criminal-like and dangerous, and not that we have a racist criminal justice system, it's that black people are the problem. And so then you don't resist. If anything, you resist the activists who are resisting the criminal justice system. And and so that's the relationship. Like, the policies are actually behind our nation's racial inequities, but we can't see that because so many Americans have consumed or internalized racist ideas.
0: How do you see people start to work through these things? So, there are people who will go to your talks or they will read the book and they will say, I get it. Like, I get the concept. Uh, I'm sure that people every stop ask you, like, where to begin. What do you say to
1: those people? So, I think what I tried to do in How to Be an Anti-Racist is in many ways take an inventory of my own ideas, particularly my ideas about black people and my ideas about the black poor, my ideas about black women, my ideas about black queer people, and admit that I had these ideas and thereby they were preventing me from seeing the, the policies that were actually ensnaring these black people. They were actually preventing me from being a true champion and defender of, of black people. And so I think that the start of it is to really free ourselves and to liberate ourselves you know, from these shackling ideas that really keep us passive and even in many cases keep us not, of course, part of the struggle against the very racist policies that for many of us are harming us. And so for me, that's what I encourage people would be the first thing that they should do. And the way you do that is you look out at any racial disparity, whether it's the preponderance of black people in the in prisons or whether it's the fact that black people are twice as likely to be unemployed or whether you're talking about how white people have 10 times more wealth in this country or that black people disproportionately live in food deserts or near environmental hazards. And you ask yourself, why do these inequities and even injustices exist? And if you have any other rationalization other than racist policies and power. And if you think that part of it is because there's something wrong with these people, then what you're essentially saying is is racist ideas. And you have to sort of own that and admit that and begin to recognize how those ideas are wrong.
0: There are a lot of people who would say that people of color can't be racist, that black people can't be racist, that racism is functionally about power, and that because black people structurally don't have power, that the term uh, is not one that can apply to them. What is your take on that?
1: Well, I think when people say that Black people can't be racist because Black people don't have power, first, they're actually imagining that there is such a third way. In other words, there's racist and anti-racist and a not racist. And apparently all Black people fall under that category. And this whole category of being not racist was really created by white supremacists themselves. But then secondly, I think we're saying two different things when we say Black people can't be racist because Black people don't have power. We're saying both collectively, like Black people as a collective can't be racist. But then we're also saying Black people individually can't be racist. And really, in the book, I don't really talk about whether Black people collectively can be racist. And I'm actually not making a case that Black people are or historically have been collectively racist. And I would actually make the case that collectively black people have resisted racism for 400 years in this country, which to me means that collectively black people have been historically been anti-racist. But to say that every single individual black person can't be racist because every single individual black person has no power, to me, that's a completely different discussion. And so in the book, I talk about how every single individual has the power to resist. And collectively, fortunately, enough Black people have used that and deployed that power to resist, to resist slavery and and Jim Crow and and now mass incarceration. But then you've also had historically and currently Black people in policy managing positions in which they had the power to execute and carry out. Um, policies, And then now, potentially uh, more than ever in the United States, you have black people in policy-making positions in which they literally have the power to make policy, whether as a CEO of a corporation or whether as a Supreme Court justice or, or whether as a mayor. And, and the question is, how are they deploying that power? Are they deploying that power to institute policies that are leading to racial equity and justice Or are some of them deploying that power to reinforce white supremacy because they see that as better for their own professional development? And for me, those Black people who are essentially reinforcing white supremacy for their own professional sort of development and advancement are being racist. Just as Black people who have been so consumed with anti-Black racist ideas, they're so consumed with internalized notions that there's something wrong with black people, that they actually resist anti-racist activists. And they certainly aren't part of the struggle. And so to me, we're either challenging racism or being racist.
0: Is there a political candidate right now running for a presidential candidate that you think embodies a set of anti-racist ideas in their platform or anti-racist policies that we should be paying attention to? And if not, what advice would you give for us to think about when we are thinking about politicians and elected officials and platforms that come out through the lens of anti-racism?
1: To be perfectly honest, I am primarily only looking at two candidates. And I'll say that it's hard for me to support a candidate who isn't advocating Medicare for all, and I don't know whether because of my own sort of medical problems or whether it's because my wife is a physician, but there's something about the movement for Medicare for all that's deeply important to me in particular, but at the same time, there are other candidates who there are certain things about them that that I like, like I really like. Leon Castro, specifically the way in which he's used the debate to really defend and, and to call the names out you know of black people to talk about voter suppression to talk about police violence i've been most excited about him in in the debates
0: What do you think this moment of trump? has done to the way that we think about racism. Obviously, it goes without saying that he is so publicly racist in almost every way that I can imagine, but it feels like he's also shifted the landscape of how people think about what racism is and what race is. What is your take on what he's done to the landscape?
1: So I think in the simplest way to explain it, I think on the one hand, he has sort of opened the door, or I should say opened the minds to many Americans who'd been seduced into this notion that this nation was post racial to the realization that it certainly is not, which of course has then opened the door for people to reassess their country, to reassess their institutions, and of course to reassess themselves. Simultaneously, when people began to reassess themselves, their institutions, and their country, some of those people have essentially pigeonholed. Racism within the body of a single person, Trump. (laughs) So you open the conversation and then close it around Trump. Or people have begun to recognize the persistence of racism, but then have simultaneously sort of wrapped that persistence around Trump and his specific supporters. And so that then has, in a way, exonerated. Never Trump Republicans. That's exonerated moderates and liberals who do not like Trump. Because when you pigeonhole or you make Trump the personification of racism, then you're essentially saying, I'm not racist because I don't like Trump or I'm not like Trump. When in fact, he's one form of racism. And you have other Americans who say, yes, you know, we should not be mass deporting Latinx immigrants, but When they come here, they need to be civilized. And so they need to act in a particular way. They need to look a particular way. Just as they've always been saying the same thing about black people, they've been saying the same thing about Muslim Americans. They've been trying to assimilate people who they believe are culturally or behaviorally inferior, but they don't believe that that is racist because they have, of course, personified or made the case that Trump was essentially the personification of racism.
0: Do you think the party will just snap back after him that because racism has become Trump as opposed to a set of policies that a host of other people supported or or like you said, uh, the attitudes and beliefs are way more than Trump? Do you think when he's gone that the Republicans will sort of say, you know, we just voted for those things because we had to because he was president, but we're not racist? And is there a way to guard against that? Like, what do you do in the face of people sort of making Trump the sole definition of what it means to be racist?
1: So let's say if Trump is defeated in 2020, I think he will still control the Republican Party because he will still have his Twitter account. He will still have his mechanisms to sort of shift and guide the media narrative. And he'll still punish Republicans who try to sort of turn on him and and basically turn the page or create a new chapter for the Republican Party. And I think potentially when he passes away, then the Republican Party can snap back. But so long as he has a voice, he will, I think, well, first of all, he'll present himself as he won and, you know, this was part of a deep state conspiracy and he's going to fight. You know, that's going to sort of be the narrative and, and anyone who's not with him is against him. But in terms of those who are making him the embodiment of racism, that's why in my work, I try to distinguish between and talk about the difference between segregationist ideas and, and assimilationist ideas. And, and I try to talk about how these are both racist ideas. So segregationist ideas are the type of ideas that state that, let's say, people of color are animals. And so since they're these ferocious animals, we have to deport them, we have to incarcerate them, we have to kill them, we have to segregate them, we have to enslave them. And that's, of course, Trump's brand of racism. But there's a different kind of racism, and that's assimilationist racism, which basically states that, no, they're not animals, Trump. They're like children. So we need to bring them closer, and we need to civilize them, and we need to develop them. And as we develop them and civilize them, they're going to become white. And and once they become white, they'll become human. While Trumpsters are like, that's impossible. They're animals. We need to get rid of them. While assimilationists are like, no, they are capable of becoming American. And because they believe or recognize their differences with Trump, these Americans imagine themselves as progressive. They imagine themselves as not racist when they just have a different type of racism. What
0: about high schoolers? Uh, You know, there are a lot of teachers who are reading your text. Because of the world that we live in today, where everybody's uh, ostensibly talking about race, there are a lot of high schoolers and students trying to make sense of the world around them. How has the book tour been in terms of getting in front of younger audiences?
1: I did not really realize this until the book was finished. But a large part of the narrative, particularly the personal narrative, happens, you know, when I'm in high school and when I'm in college. And so I think for young people who are in high school and college and who are sort of dealing with some of the same ideological struggles that I was dealing with, who are dealing with some of the same sort of forces of racism that I was dealing with in high school, from what I've heard and from what I've been told, I mean, it really sort of resonates with them. But then at the same time, when you're in high school, you're also being told these ideas, like I was told, that don't be like those other Black kids. And so for some, particularly Black high school students who are realizing the ways in which that that is denigrating those other kids and and that, you know, I think they're really being able to gain a more expansive conception of Blackness and being able to recognize the imperfections of Blackness that really make us human and thereby equal to to other racial groups. And it's very rewarding for me because I wish that I didn't have to go through this struggle, you know, that I went through the last 20 years in which I've been wrestling with my own identity. I've been wrestling with my own conception of this world.
0: And what about teachers? I keep asking about the Torah only because it's such a fascinating lens through which in real time you see people engage with the text, especially a text like this.
1: So let me give an example. In the book, I have a story in which I talk about when I staged this like one-man protest when I was in third grade, and I basically refused to leave the chapel because I felt one of my Black fellow students was being discriminated against, and, and I felt the white teacher was favoring the white students. And And so the teacher sort of comes upon me. I'm sitting in in the chapel and and she tells me it's time to go. And I basically say, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not going anywhere. And in that narrative in the book, I talk about how she never asked me what was wrong. She just started ordering me to leave and, and telling me that basically I was in trouble. And I said, you know, in the text, well, what if she would have asked me what is wrong? And typically black children are not asked what's wrong, because people chalk up our misbehavior to our Blackness. And so I related that story in the book, and I can remember a teacher actually stating in a particular case that, you know, it was a similar situation, and he wanted to suspend the student, but instead he asked the student what was wrong. And that then led to, you know, a discussion that led to the student ultimately not being suspended. And so this teacher reached out to me explaining how important reading the book was to that specific choice that he made and and how, in a larger sense, it is so critical for us to individualize every single Black student, every single student of color. And it's critical for us to even individualize every single time we perceive them to be misbehaving. In other words, what is really happening? And we should be figuring out. What is going on? And we should be treating children like children.
0: And the two questions we ask everybody, the first is, uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I think
1: really the distinction between and being very clear about the distinction between destructive and constructive criticism and how it's both going to hurt. But I have to be willing to distinguish the two. Because if I can distinguish the two and receive constructive criticism well, then it's going to allow me to continue to grow as a person. And I think that's been very critical in my growth.
0: And the second question is, um, there are a lot of people in this world right now who who feel like they've done everything. They call, they emailed, they protested, they read your book, they read my book, they listened to the podcast. And the world just hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people?
1: Well, We should not necessarily lose hope. We are essentially fighting against extremely powerful sort of forces who will do anything to maintain their power and wealth. But at the same time, I sort of gain hope. I gain aspiration and belief from history, from previous moments in which the seemingly impossible happened probably the most impossible event of what I would consider the modern world is the Haitian Revolution. How from 1791, an enslaved group of people with no military training who were basically producing wealth for the French Empire, which had made Haiti the most profitable colony of any European empire in the world. And 13 years later, they declared Haiti independent and free after defeating local slaveholding whites, armies from Spain, France, and England in succession to win their freedom. And so to me, if that can happen, or if in 1860, wealthy white slaveholders in this country could look upon themselves when they're looking at each other as the most powerful and richest group of people in the world, and five years later, because of the activism and, and the bravery of of African Americans and others could essentially be stripped of their embodied wealth, then to me, anything is possible. We just have to continue to resist.
0: There we go. Ibram, thanks so much for joining us today on Empathy of the People. If you've not bought the book, How to Be Anti-Racist, you should buy it today. It's definitely at your local bookstore. And uh, Ibram, we'll have you back with the next book.
1: Definitely. Enjoyed the talk, brother.
0: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in on Empathy of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.